Okay, men, it's time to be honest. Okay. Have you ever gotten like some of that, some piece of furniture or something that came in a box you had to put together? Right? And they've got it labeled with letters and the screws are in packages that are matched up to the letters and all this stuff. And you're like, I can do this. I can do this. And you start putting it together and you're moving along and you're feeling good about yourself and you get near the end and you've got a whole pack of screws and some pieces aren't lining up. It's like a shelf and it's like it's just not there and you're going. Um, um. And we're not even talking about the directions, okay? We're not even going to talk about the instructions, whether you followed them or not. It doesn't matter, okay? It doesn't matter. Well, I guess it does matter, but that's not what we're talking about. But you find out that you've got to tear the whole thing apart and start over again. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, I've done it before. Because you find that it's really just best to try to just, just start over because if you don't start over, you're going to try to fix step 7 and then step 13 and, and really you're like, you know what, I can't, I can't get to that piece. I've got to pull that out. That was the wrong part that I put in there. And you've just got to take the whole thing apart. And you've spent an hour and a half at this point or three hours or whatever. And you're like, I've just got to start over. Why? Because I've been doing this wrong the whole time. The whole time. It's a little bit frustrating, isn't it? Again, maybe, maybe some of y'all don't have a clue what that's all about because you follow the instructions and you put part E in phase five and everything matches up and you get done and you've got the spare part you're supposed to have and you go, I'm done. A job done right is a job twice done, right? You don't have to do, if you do it right the first time, you don't have to go back and do it again. Anybody get later on in their life and realize that they've been doing something wrong their whole life? Anybody? It's what the internet's for, right? To point out everything that you've been doing wrong all these years. You've been peeling the banana from the wrong end. Y'all know that, right? I can't do anything right according to the internet. Everything I've been doing my whole life has been wrong. Well, today, in the passage that we're going to look at, these Jews of Jesus' time are going to hear basically that message that they've been doing things wrong their whole lives. The question is, will they hear it? Can they hear it? Will they do something about it? Can they do something about it? Can they start over? Because they're going to be called to. We're looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30 today. We're going to finish up chapter 11 today in our journey through the gospel of Matthew. And it's already been so rich, so good, and we've got 17 more chapters to go, right? I don't know. I may have grandkids by the time we finish Matthew. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Hannah's like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. <laughs> Preacher's kids, sorry. If you would, please stand for the public reading of the Word again. I told you we do it a lot, but as we read the very words of God in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your way is perfect. We thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us, instruct us, convict us, and draw us to you. And God, I would ask this morning, Father, if there be anyone here this morning who does not know that Jesus is their Lord and their Savior, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins, show them their need for a Savior, and show them that Jesus is that Savior as we work through this passage today. We expect your help because you said you'd give it if we ask. We ask and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A little different vibe this week than last week, right? I've laughed all week long. As as I was reading the passage last week, I'm hearing people go, Oh, 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 man, oh, oh, oh. I didn't hear that this week. Last week was pretty tough, wasn't it? Jesus really rolled out the not red carpet and said, walk this way. That's tough stuff. And then what we see today as we start into this passage, this is not a different Jesus. It's not even a different message. This is the same message, the same Jesus, and it sounds so much nicer. So how's this work? Well, let's start into this. Verse 25. Let me stop for a second. For those of you that weren't here last week, We'll talk about it in a minute. Jesus was pronouncing woes on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and saying it was going to be better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for those cities on the day of judgment. And he told Capernaum specifically, he said, you think you'll be exalted to heaven, but really you'll be taken to Hades. Jesus was laying down strong word last week. But we find strong word this week as well. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So, as we start this passage here in verse 25, as, as, like we've seen so many times in Matthew, it's like when we were in Romans, it seemed like almost every passage we started with started with the word for, for. For this, for that, for this, for that. And so many times here in Matthew, what we've seen at the beginning of our passage is a time stamp. It's like Matthew saying, then this, after these things. Today, it's at that time that we see here at the beginning, this time stamp, at that time. Well, when was that time? Recap again from last week, and actually before last week. We left off last week with Jesus having pronounced those woes on the Galilean towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for their lack of repentance. And that was the main thing last week. They didn't repent after seeing all of His miracles. 
Now, what we've seen in prior passages in Matthew 11 was Jesus dealing with questions from John the Baptist's disciples about whether or not Jesus was actually the Messiah. Then we saw Jesus' testimony of who John really was in God's prophetic plan. And of course we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees continual doubt through all of Matthew pretty much and even accusations the whole time he's been ministering from the scribes and the Pharisees. So now if you put that all together to come to this at this time time, what's important to understand is where Jesus finds himself at this time. Okay? We've seen crowds following Jesus. We've seen crowds pressing in on Him. We've seen people rejoicing at His miracles and just people flocking and thronging to Him wherever He is. He's been immensely popular until now. Okay? But at this time, this looks like it's verse, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12 is, is painting a picture of doubts creeping in, of opposition starting to really work its way into... The, the ministry of Jesus. So his popularity has kind of taken a little bit of a hit. Of course, if, if you'd have been standing there when he was saying, Woe is you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you're going to hell because you didn't repent, it's kind of easy to understand why he wasn't as popular as he had been before when he was just blessing people, healing people, raising dead people, cleansing lepers, stopping winds from blowing. Healing demoniacs. I mean, you know, all that's fun stuff. And now Jesus is coming in and He's saying, Repent! Which is what He'd been saying the whole time. They weren't listening. And now He's laying it down. He said, If you don't repent, you're going to hell. Well, people have a tendency to bristle at stuff like that, don't they? Well, who are you to tell me? Who do you think you are? When His miracles were, were attesting to who He was, they're still looking at Him and going, Hey, you better watch what you say, mister. Because we're God's chosen people. So some doubt is starting to creep in. His popularity has taken a little bit of a hit. After sending out His disciples, which we saw in chapter 10, we're moving into a series of doubts in chapters 11 and 12. First was John's doubt. John the Baptist himself had doubts, right? Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Because John was rotten in prison. Then we saw the lack of repentance in Jesus' most frequently visited towns last week. This doubt, which we'll see over the next chapter as well, will move Jesus into a time of increased hostility and opposition. And after last week's passage, it's pretty clear that Jesus is getting a little sterner, maybe getting a little more widespread in His using language that is at the least, at least it's provocative, making people think, but at worst it's actually agitating. He's saying things that are getting people worked up, getting people upset. Again, last week we saw that he said it would be more bearable for Sodom than Capernaum in the day of judgment. It's pretty tough language. And he had told his disciples that persecution was coming and that if they persecuted him, they would persecute them. So we see that kind of starting to take shape here, beginning with doubts and questions, even among those who are most familiar with him. Now, with that being said, after facing doubt from John and then seeing the lack of repentance in his local folks at that time. And at that time, Jesus declared, Oh, woe is me! People are upset with what I'm saying. At that time, Jesus declared, I wish you guys liked me a little more. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I know how to tell you to live your best life now. No, no. at that time, Jesus declared, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of mounting persecution that's coming, Jesus declares at that time, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Hmm. Hmm. Think about that for a second. That's quite a statement, isn't it? In the face of mounting persecution, this is what he leads with in this passage? Yes. Let's look at it in depth. Jesus' first expression is what? I thank you. It's it's an expression of thanks. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Whatever he's about to say, he prefaces it by addressing God and thanking Him. And notice what he calls God. He calls Him Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He calls God His Father. Now we've looked at this already in Matthew and we we looked at it pretty in depth when we looked at the, the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6 that Jesus taught them to pray. But this calling God Father thing is a radical thing. It's radical. Listen to R.C. Sproul talk about this. It's a couple of, that's several sentences here. A few years ago, Sproul says, a German scholar was doing research in New Testament literature and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism... In all existing books of the Old Testament and all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century A.D. in Italy, there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as Father. He goes on to say this, There were appropriate forms of address that were used by Jewish people in the Old Testament and the children were trained to address God in proper phrases of respect. All these titles were memorized and the term Father was not among them. The first Jewish rabbi to call God Father directly was Jesus of Nazareth. It was a radical departure from tradition and in fact, in every recorded prayer we have from the lips of Jesus, save one, He calls God Father. It was for that reason that many of Jesus' enemies sought to destroy Him. He assumed to have this intimate personal relationship with the sovereign God of heaven and the creator of all things. And he dared to speak in such intimate terms with God. End of quote. Did you catch that bit about not one Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father until the 10th century A.D.? That Jesus was the first Jewish rabbi in history to refer to God as His Father. It's a pretty big deal. How do you think it was affecting the Jewish people around Him? Imagine the first time He did it and somebody goes, What? Did Did He just call the Lord Father? Yeah, he did. Can you imagine the scribes and the Pharisees? They pulled out the, oh no, he didn't card. Oh no, he didn't. And Jesus said, yeah, I did. So you see some persecution here, right? You see some, some frustration with people mounting. Because what, when he's praying to God, the Lord, Yahweh, as Father, 
That was certainly a shock. And he didn't just do it himself. He taught his disciples to do the same thing. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father. And here in this time, as doubts are being expressed by people, as public opinion is starting to maybe sour a little against Jesus, he steps up in public and calls God his Father directly in prayer. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. I thank you, Father. And they're like, what? Who does this guy think he is? Wrong question. Who do you think he is? Is a better question. And just to be sure they knew who he was referring to exactly... He identifies His Father as Lord of heaven and earth. Now they'd have been more familiar with that. That's obviously Yahweh, whose name they would not spell out because it was so sacred they were afraid to misspell it. Jehovah, the God of the Jewish Scriptures, the God that the Jews claimed to know and serve. And guess what? They'd been doing it wrong this whole time. And Jesus says, there's a better way. My Father, I thank you, Father. That God, Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, is Jesus' Father. The God of those who identified themselves as the chosen people of God. That God is Jesus' Father and the Father of His disciples. And who are these disciples of Jesus? Well, it's them that Jesus is thanking His Father for. Look at that next phrase. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus thanks His Father that God has hidden these things, the things that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had missed, these things about who Jesus was and what He was doing, and and, and the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus is thankful that God's plan was to reveal things to little children and to hide things from the wise and the understanding. Puh. Ain't no wonder they hated Him. The word for reveal is apocalypto, which is just fun to say, you're welcome. There's a word you can just apocalypto. Apocalypto. It sounds like apocalypse, right? It means to uncover, this word for reveal. Reveal means to uncover, to lay open what has been veiled or covered up, to disclose, to make bare, to make known, to make manifest, to disclose what before was unknown. And God is uncovering His plan, unveiling His kingdom, making manifest what has been prophesied about for thousands of years now, and He's revealing it to little children. What's that mean? Who is that? Well, Jesus has already said at one point in Matthew 10, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the disciples, the people that he has called to himself, that he has sent out, these are the little ones, the little children that God is revealing these things to. His true followers are little children. And that doesn't mean they're... Four, it means that they're insignificant. 
They're cast-offs. Nobody wants nobody want to deal with kids in that period. We're adults. We've got adult stuff to do. You kids go play wedding and funeral in the marketplace, right? And Jesus says, it's the cast-offs. It's the nobodies. It's the people who have no social standing that God is revealing these things to, that He's uncovering, that He's making manifest to. Especially when you compare them to the wise and understanding people of the day. Those who think that they've got it all figured out. Those who seem so smart and high and mighty to the crowds of the day. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elites, the Jewish in-crowd. But it's this in-crowd, these in-crowd folks that Jesus says, listen to me, that God has hidden His revelation from. Does that make you uncomfortable? Make you squirm a little bit? Does me. God's hiding things from people. God's withholding things from people. And it's not just how how did giraffes get such long necks? A spotted camel with a 40 foot long neck, that's not weird at all. That's not the kind of stuff he's hiding from people. What he's withholding from people, what he's hiding from people is who he is and what he's doing and what his plan is. That's what he's withholding from people. God is withholding from people. The in crowd. Now get that. Now remember last week, Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. Well, this is a vivid example of that. The little children have ears and they are hearing. The wise and the understanding do not have ears and they are not hearing. You say, well, God wouldn't do that. I, I didn't say it. No, that's not the right verse. You ever feel stupid? <laughs> we'll get that right there. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things about yourself, about me, about your plan, about your kingdom. I thank you that you've hidden these things. (laughs) This Jesus guy, (laughs) he don't care. The wise and understanding do not have ears and God is hiding things from them. And it's God's plan. That's God's doing. Now look at verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus says that this hiding and this revealing is, yes, His Father's gracious will. Wow. This is Jesus' Father's gracious will. What is? To hide what He's doing from the wise and understanding and to reveal it to little children. That's God's gracious will. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Then your God's not the God of the Bible. Now just take a minute and think about this. It's God's will to hide what He is doing from proud people who think they have it all figured out. It's God's will to reveal what He's doing to little children, the overlooked, the common folks, the forgotten ones. That's God's will. 
Now, we talk about God's will a lot, right? But have you ever really thought about what that means? What is God's will? I pray that God's will would be done. Well, what's that mean? I don't know. God's will. What does it mean to speak of God's will? Well, to put it simply, it's what God has decided to do or not do. To will is to desire or choose something. Merriam-Webster defines it as desire, choice, consent, or in a negative sense, refusal. Will is what you will or will not do. What is your will? It's what you want or decide to do or not to do. So, God's will is what God desires. It's what God ordains to happen. And here, God ordained that proud people have truth hidden from them by Him. And little children have God's truth revealed to them by Him. But wait, why would God will that to be so? Well, Jesus actually says that this is not just God's will, but but what? What does the text say? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The Greek structure is actually one word. It would translate literally as, for such was your good will. Hiding His will from the wise and understanding and revealing it to little children is God's gracious, God's good will. It's grace for God to do so. It's gracious. Well, now what's that mean? Well, grace is what? Undeserved favor. It's the easiest way to define it. And here, God's grace is given by hiding some things from some people and revealing things to other people. But how can it be grace to hide things from people? How can God be gracious by not showing some people what He's doing and what His will is? Well, that's tough. And we struggle with things like this, but God doesn't. And it helps to remember who it is that set all this thing that we call the universe up. Who set it all up? This is my Father's world. This is God's universe. It belongs to Him. Now, let's go back to 1983. Masters of the universe. Transformers. G.I. Joe. Some of you are going, yeah, I remember I had a certain way that I set my toys up. Castle Grayskull was over here. The Providence Bible Church famous Castle Grayskull. It seems to come up every six months or so. Snake Mountain was over here. Good guys, bad guys. Okay? Skeletor was on the throne over here. He-Man was on the throne over here. That's how things were supposed to be set up. Ram Man was leading the charge for the good guys because he was the one who could knock the door down. That's how things were set up. In my play world, I went to my friend's house. It was mayhem. It was insanity. Ram Man was in a box somewhere. Optimus Prime was leading the charge against Snake Mountain. I'm like, that's, that's not even the right universe of toys, man. What are you doing? 
You've got a transformer leading a charge against the master of the universe. This is not going to work. This is going to fail. But that's how things were in his world. And they were his toys. And he could set them up any way that he wanted to. And I could tell him he was wrong all I wanted to. And I was wrong for saying he was wrong. Because they weren't my toys. Whose universe is this? It's God's. It's not yours. It's not mine yet. God sets this universe up the way that He wants to. And in God's universe that belongs to Him, that He made, that He spoke into existence, it's His will. It's His purpose. It's His glory to graciously hide things from some people and graciously reveal things to other people. You don't like that. I don't really either. In and of myself. But I'm not God. And neither are you. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Okay, fine. Let Optimus Prime charge Snake Mountain. That's up to you. It's not going to work. Listen to me. Your way is not going to work. You've been doing it wrong the whole time. If you're doing it your way. This is God's universe. He set it up to run the way that He says it should run. He set this thing called His kingdom up in such a way that His plan is carried out, His will is carried out, His declarations are carried out by those who have had things revealed to them. It's His plan. He willed, He declared that He would share His kingdom with some people. People that deserve it? Absolutely not. And in His grace, He decided that some people would spend eternity with Him worshiping Him. He did not have to do that. And that's grace. He didn't have to invite people to reign and to rule with Him, but He did. He graciously did. They didn't deserve this because as we are, they were, we're all sinners. Every single one of us. And God owes nothing to sinners. But He graciously chooses to reveal Himself to some of them. That's the easy side of it, right? God didn't have to share with anybody, but He shared with some people. God shows His grace by revealing Himself to some people. But what about those who have God's will, God's purposes hidden from them? Is that gracious? Yes! Because God's ways are not designed to be figured out or merited by those who feel like they're capable or competent in and of themselves. If what they have is not from grace, it's not from God, it's from their efforts. And God withholding Himself from pride and arrogance is grace! Otherwise, it would be up to human reasoning to figure God out. It has to come from God or it's not grace. Leaving, reaching God to human ability is cruel because it's impossible. God is not like us and we cannot figure Him out. If we could, we would be God. 
So in God's gracious plan, there are those who freely and graciously receive from Him and there are those who boast in their own abilities. If God withholds His will from those who are trying to earn it, it is grace because doing otherwise would invalidate what grace is all about. In God's gracious will, He reveals Himself to those who cannot help themselves and hides Himself from those who think that they have it all figured out. This is grace and it's not tyranny. And Jesus thanks His Father as He sees this gracious will being played out in front of His very eyes. Yes, such was and is God's gracious So now Jesus is going to really jump onto the sovereignty bandwagon with verse 27. Whew! All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now you talk about a mouthful. That verse right there is a mouthful. It's really a God statement that we just can't fully process truthfully. You don't don't get this. I don't get this. Not fully. But Jesus is speaking, Don would always say, in baby talk to us to hopefully communicate to His hearers and us that God is graciously working God's will for God's glory. Look at this verse. It's just phenomenal. All things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, if you didn't think the Jews were mad before, their blood pressure just shot up to 200 over 180. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says, by my Father. We've already seen the scandal of him calling God his Father. And now here, he says that his Father has handed all things... Over to Him. Now what's that mean? Well, don't overanalyze it. It means exactly what it says. God created all things, right? And in His perfect plan, He passed on these things, all things, to His Son. His Son. One God, three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And in the perfect unity of the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father gave the Son all things. There's one single Greek word for the phrase we read as having been handed over. Another fun word, paradidomai. It means to give up, to give over, to commit, to give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power to use, to deliver to one something to keep, to use, to take care of, or to manage. It was the Father's plan to hand all things, all things over to the Son for the Son to manage, to take care of, to use, and exert power over. It pleased the Father to bless the Son with all things. That's that's easy. Okay? And what else does Jesus say here? And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, period, 
Wow! That statement is just, wow. So God reveals and hides as part of His gracious will, and the Father gives all things to the Son, and as such, who knows the Son and the Father? Who knows what they're up to? Well, the Son does. That's what Jesus just said. No one knows the Son except the Father. Again, this is sovereignty. Only God the Father truly knows who God the Son is. And who knows the Father? The Son. Okay? But, but wait. There's a monstrous and grace-filled clause after the Son. Who knows the Father? The Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. <laughs> wait, now what? Only God truly knows God. Only the Father knows the Son. And nobody knows the Father except the Son. And the Son, knowing the Father, chooses to reveal... There's that word again. His Father to others. You tracking with me here? You tracking with Jesus here? I mean, really tracking with Him? It's our tendency to see this and instantly jump to a thought of God not being fair. Because He doesn't choose to reveal Himself to some people. But don't miss the miracle here. God the Son chooses to reveal His Father to some people. Graciously, powerfully, gloriously choosing to reveal. The Jews would say that they chose to keep God's commandments. They chose to tithe down to the smallest spice. They chose to fast twice a week. They chose to pray to God. But Jesus comes and says, it's God's gracious will to reveal Himself through His Son. That's God's will. Not people and their doings, but God and His revealing. And in that gracious revealing, the Son chooses who is who. Jesus is exerting His sovereignty, showing clearly that He is the gateway to God, the gateway to heaven, that He is very God of very God. Jesus is standing in the midst of an arrogant people that He has just pronounced woes upon because they didn't repent upon seeing God's gracious will unfolding in front of them through the life and work of Jesus. And He's pointing them to Himself as their only hope. And they will ultimately kill him for that. Because he is showing clearly that God's way is not by self-exertion or self-exaltation, but rather God's way is grace and revelation. God's way is God's plan and God's power. Jewish folk, he says, you've been doing it wrong the whole and you got to start over and you got to come back to me. He would say to the Jews at another time, you search the Scriptures hoping to find in them what you need, but they point to me. It is them that speak of me. I'm the place you've got to start. There is no other entrance. There is no other way. 
And now, after that mammoth thought, look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. gospel oh the gospel Jesus has sent out his disciples which is asserting his authority he showed his messiahship even to his doubting forerunner he's verbally blessed that doubter John the Baptist he's pronounced woes on three towns He points to God's sovereignty, His own place of prominence in God's plan, and now He extends an invitation to those who know their need to come to Him. After so pointedly singling Himself out, pointing to Himself, He makes Himself available to come to. Come to Me, He says. Come to Me! Jesus says, come to me who? All who labor and are heavy laden. The gospel call is for those who cannot go on on their own anymore. The gospel call is for the people who have given up on trying to figure it out themselves. The gospel call is to those who know that they are not holy in and of themselves and can never be by their striving, by their working, by their laboring. The gospel call is for those who have worked and have been exploited by others and are worn out and can't go on. Salvation is for those who are tired. Tired of working, tired of trying, tired of being a slave to others, trying to make everybody happy, trying to please an impossible God. And to those who are tired of themselves. And in that state, in that worn out, can't do any more place, Jesus says, come to Because He will give you rest. Rest. Now there's a great word. The Greek word is anapao. And it means, listen to me. Listen to what rest means. This is what Jesus is offering to people who come to Him. Listen to what it means. It means to cause or permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect His strength. To give rest, to refresh, to keep quiet of calm and patient expectation. Sound good to anybody besides me? Rest! Jesus says to come to Him if you're worn out from slave labor. Scripture says that we were held in bondage by the devil to do His will. Jesus says, come to Him if you're worn out from slave labor, working and exhausting yourself, because in Him, because in Him, you will find rest. 
He is the place where you cease from your labor. He is the place where you recover. He is the place where you keep quiet, calm down. And He is the place where you patiently expect Him to give you what you need. And even what you want. Patiently expect Him to give Himself to you. Patiently expect Him to give the revelation of the Father to you. Because only He can. If you are trusting in yourself, straining to prove your worth, straining to do a little better today, straining to try harder to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and you have worn yourself out trying to earn God's favor, you will find no rest. If you want Jesus, and only Jesus, then you will find rest. True rest. Yes, the gospel is for those who are tired, not for those who are proud. Last two verses. I'm going to have to boogie. We've got to get moving. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hallelujah. Jesus has just called His hearers to come to Him for rest. Here He explains what that rest looks like. Oddly enough, that rest looks like work. But here's the deal. The work is with and in the power of Jesus Himself. He says that those who come to Him come to a yoke. That's not an egg part, y'all. Y-O-K-E. A yoke is a big wooden collar. Collar, C-O-L-L-A-R. Sometimes I've got to spell things because I can't say them. Collar. The big wooden collar that's put around the necks of animals, actually in some cases even humans. To help pull things behind them. A sledge, a plow, a wagon. The yoke put the animals beside each other and kept them pulling in the same direction. It was a common practice to yoke up a younger, weaker animal with a more experienced, stronger animal so that the younger, weaker one would learn how to operate correctly. If it tried to pull in its own direction against the norm, the expected, it would get overridden, overpowered by the bigger animal and the yoke. We want you to go this way. So yoke sits here. If you try to go this way, you're pulling against this stronger animal. You're pulling against this big wooden yoke and it's going to hurt you. So through pain, you learn not to pull that way anymore. The younger animal was learning how to operate without harming itself. The younger animal was learning how to give the desired outcome to its master. Here, Jesus says to come to Him and find the rest of being yoked with Him. Also, in this same vein of thought, the law had been turned into a heavy, unbearable yoke by the Jews, one that was a burden that no one could carry. Jesus contrasts His yoke with the yoke of the legalists. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said that He had come to fulfill the law. He's doing the heavy lifting. He will keep the law perfectly. He has in our time. And God will graciously give us who are yoked up with Jesus the same righteousness as Jesus who kept the law to perfection. And then we don't just get the yoke put on us and sit down. It's time to get to work. And Jesus says that work is learning from Him. And we have to. 
It's not just you get the gift of righteousness and slide into heaven in any fashion you choose. No, when you yoke up with Jesus, you start to learn. You grow and you become more like Him, which is the process of sanctification. And in that process, we see Him and know Him as gentle and lowly in heart. This shows Him as kind, benevolent, and not a slave driver. He is patient with us. He helps us. And this is true rest for our souls. We don't have to be beaten, driven, or punished. No, His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That's what we get when we yoke up with Jesus. When we come to Him to find rest. Anybody interested in that? Takes us to application. Before application, I just want to note the progression of what Jesus has done here in in chapter 11 to this point. It's the gospel. He has proclaimed the coming wrath of God. Woe to you! He's proclaimed the sovereignty of God. Nobody can know the Father except the Son and whoever the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then there's a command slash invitation to come. And then there's direction to rest, learn, grow, and work. That's the gospel. And those things have to be present for the gospel to be properly proclaimed. We don't lead with Jesus loves you. We lead with the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And a sovereign God is doing His will, so you need to repent. How do I repent? You come to Jesus, take His yoke upon you, learn from Him, work with Him, grow with Him. That's the gospel. Three application points, L's, L-L-L. Lord, learn, and leisure. First application point is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we say that and we sing it, but what's He Lord of? Everything. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus Christ is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. What's the application here? If you don't know Him, it's to repent and recognize Him as the Lord of everything. If you do know Him, what's the application? Rejoice! My master, my Lord, is the Lord of everything. Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that being Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Confess that, Christian. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. And in that everything, one thing that He's Lord of is revelation. We saw that today, right? He's Lord of whom He reveals what, to, and whom He wants to reveal. And He is Lord of what He hides. To whom and what He will. 
And listen to me, Christian. That is not reason to squirm in your seat and feel uncomfortable with God. It's reason to rejoice. The sovereignty of God is the best news in the universe. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the best news in the world! It's not a theological debate. It's not a matter of your preferences. The sovereignty of God in saving whom He saves, revealing what He wants to reveal to whom He wants to reveal it, is the best news in the universe. And we run from it like we're scared from it. Scared of it. Well, we don't want to talk about sovereignty because that means that God's in control of everything. Exactly! Of everything! He is Lord! But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, not our works, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The sovereign grace of God is the best news in the world. It's God's gracious will. Rejoice in it, Christian. He is Lord. Second application point. We've seen Lord, now it's learn. When we come to Christ, after coming to Him, we get to learn from Him, from the Lord of everything. Paul says this to Timothy, "...until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching." Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Listen to me. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So it's not just a matter of having the will of God magically revealed to us and we just sail into heaven. It's God, you have revealed yourself to me. Now help me to learn from you. Help me to learn of you, about you. One version of this, and I can't remember which version it is, says to practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And it literally says to be surrounded by them. And the thought is like a sponge being dipped in water. Immerse yourself in these things. Soak them up. That's what it means to learn. Jesus said, come to me and learn from me. Why? For I'm meek and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the last thing that Jesus said before He left the earth, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Being a Christian means learning. 
And it means learning of Christ and learning from Christ. Last application point. Lord, learn leisure. And leisure means what? It means rest. Cease from your labor. And rest in the labor with and for Jesus. Whose yoke is easy. Whose burden is light. And who says we will find rest for our souls in Him. We read this in the public reading. I'll read it and we'll be done. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, speaking of the ancient Israelites, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. How do I rest? You believe in Jesus. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Talking about the ancient Israelites who were moving into the land of Jordan. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, listen, has also rested from His works, as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The ancient Israelites did not enter the rest because they did not put their faith in God. They leaned on their own understanding, did their own thing, worked their own works, did their own thing, and we see it manifested in the time of Jesus as them trying to please God by what they were doing. And God says plainly here, lay it all down, cease from your labor, and strive diligently to enter into the rest that is found in believing in Jesus. There is no other way. Put down your deadly doings and find your rest in the finished work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you have been faithful to reveal yourself, to show yourself, And in Romans you would say that no man is without excuse because your invisible attributes have been seen clearly through creation. But yet we chose to worship the creature instead of the creator. But God, being rich in grace with the great love with which he has loved us, has revealed himself to us, shown himself to us, and given us his son as a perfect gift of righteousness so that I may enter heaven into the very presence of God justly and be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. No, God, I do not deserve that. I could not earn that. But you have given it freely as a gift, and I believe. Give us the faith that we need to believe, God, to trust you and to glorify you in all that we do. We need you. We love you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction?
Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can.